Good morning. No slides today. Open your Bibles to the, the book of James, the New Testament epistle to James, or of James, from James. Um, I'm probably going to break a rule here I, uh, by telling you what I wanted to speak on. I was working on, a, um, on the topic of the atonement, and I really wanted to bring several messages on the atonement, and I realized I wasn't ready. You know, if you ever dig into a topic, and you're like, well, I, I can't handle this yet. Um, so, Lord willing, next time we meet, uh, maybe we'll have a good series on the atonement. I'm trying to come to the place in life where I can do more than just one or two messages, but, you know, five or six messages. Um, at, at Avenue 54, we went through the covenants like we did here, uh, but we did in about seven messages. I'm trying to do that, and, and when I look back into the history of some of the preaching from uh, speakers that have frequented assemblies like these, a lot of times these brothers would do series. Um, I know you guys have had a series on the tabernacle, and those are really helpful. Those are very helpful to try to really treat a topic well in Scripture. Um, so that's what's on my heart, by the way, is to um, treat theological topics like salvation, the personal work of Christ, Christology, Bible prophecy, all of those big topics um, in, a, in a fair and deep, deep way. Um, so it's good to see you all again. We're in the, uh, the book of James, and let's just open in prayer again, and then we'll just dive in, and uh, I'll share some things this morning. Father, we ask that, as I've said many times, Lord, from a pulpit, that you would do what only you can do, and that is to take your word and to apply it to us. Lord, I can talk, I can speak, um, I can raise the pitch of my voice and become more emotional, um, I can get attention perhaps, Lord, but you and you alone by the power of your spirit can change hearts. And so we ask that you would take your word and that you would apply it to our hearts and our lives. Look, I don't know um, who's grieving this morning, who's excited, who's apprehensive. I don't know anything like that except for a few cases. And so, Lord, I just, I, I ask that of you with the application of your word. Um, help us to love you more as a result of what we read this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, this morning, what I'd like to share is um, a, a probably very basic message, and, and it comes from James. I, I bet half of you have led a Sunday school class or study on James. Um, when people start to preach, they, they tend to go to James. Um, so this morning, I'd like to give you what, what you might call five areas of deception, five ways we can deceive ourselves according to what we find in James. Five ways we can deceive ourselves. If you want a different title, you don't like that one, you might say, James talks about your talk about your belief, right? You claim to believe things about God, right? You profess that. If you haven't heard words like that before, we'll talk about a person who professes faith, they say they have belief. It's a profession. Whether that's a real uh, a reality about their inner life is something that we can't see, right? I can't look inside you and see what's there. I can only tell by what comes out of you, right? I can make guesses. Um, if that's hard to understand, you might think of something like love. I can tell my wife I love her, uh, and those are just words, but then if she sees certain actions that indicate that I've been paying attention to what she's trying to communicate to me about how she understands love and how she feels love, then she knows that there's something real there, right? 
So there's a profession, and then there's, uh, there's reality. And so James talks about your claims to have faith, your claims to believe that God is there and the gospel is true. So let's look at some of those um, this morning. I'm just going to read from verse number one of James. I'm reading from the NASB this morning. I hope that's okay. James 1, um, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's he writing to? To the 12 tribes who are dispersed or scattered abroad. Greetings. So he's probably writing to an audience of professing Jewish Christians. Some people today say it's not possible to be Jewish and be a Christian. And you could say, well, the Messiah was Jewish and all of the writers in the New Testament very possibly, you could debate on Luke, were Jewish, right? Most of the early church was Jewish. So this is an interesting uh, claim that people make these days. Uh, so he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Then he says these words, these amazing words, these famous words, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why in the world would you ever do that? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so, or and, let endurance have its perfect work, its perfect results. To what end? So that you may be perfect. And when you read that word perfect in the New Testament, you don't want to think sinless. You want to think full-grown, full-orbed, fully mature. When you plant a seed in the ground, let's call it an orange seed, what are you hoping for? You guys can do this. When you plant an orange seed in the ground, what are you hoping for? There you go. An orange tree. Now, is that a... Is that a perfect orange tree when you, you, know, you go to Home Depot and you get this two-foot-high tree and mysteriously the trees at Home Depot are full of fruit at two feet high? I don't understand how they do that. I probably don't want to know. But that's not really a perfect, it's not really a perfect tree. The, 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 the original word is telos. We get the idea of telescope from it, right? You've heard of a telescope. Um, reaching the end for which something was begun. So a full-orbed, a perfect tree would be what? A know, a good-sized fruit tree that's healthy and bearing fruit. That's what you go to Home Depot to buy, right? You envision that, you buy it, you plant it in your yard, and you move long before you ever see it full-grown. Uh, at least we do. <laughs> so, so when James uses the word perfect, that's, something, that's more of the direction that you should think. And so James says, listen, we want to let endurance have its, or patience let, let it have its perfect work so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So what do we want to say about this? Uh, I'm going to give you five little titles. They might sound a little bit goofy, um, but they'll sort of help you to think. The first one of these is that real faith, okay, this is my first point. I said five areas. Real faith shouldn't be like an athlete that refuses to leave the bench or has never left the bench and gotten into the game. Uh, real faith is tested faith. Genuine faith is tested faith. The idea that I'm going for is, is simply this. When we profess to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or to put it even simpler, to believe in God, James gets into Jewish communities that, that profess belief in God, right? We're sort of making a claim that's just sort of out there. But only when that's put to the test do we get to see often what that claim really amounts to. And do others get to see what that claim really amounts to. I'm going to try to express something this morning that's hard for me to express, but I think James and 1 John do something for the believer or for the, the person that has a Bible that's sort of hard to get at. And let me, let me explain this way. 
James and 1 John have passages that sometimes make people struggle with their salvation or eternal security because they push on claims that we make, right? They really push on them. Um, and so they sort, of, they sort of do a good work at, at challenging the claims that we make in ways that sometimes are uncomfortable. I, I'll, I'll tell you a story about the first time I realized this. I'm sure you've all had an experience where you knew something, you saw something in scripture, and then you had this experience, and then it really sort of settled in. And I was in Barbados years ago doing um, vacation Bible school. I had I'd been speaking at an assembly. You guys know Larry Price? Larry's been here. So Larry and I were at an assembly in Ocala, Florida, and there was a man there from Barbados, um, and, um, and his, last, his name was Cecil Gill, Brother Cecil. And they call him Gilly on the island. And he says, you should come and do some children's work, vacation Bible school. And so I said, sure, I'll go. And I went, and so we kind of went up back into, it's not a village, but back into the hills, the dusty roads. And we did vacation Bible school. Me and two other people would show up, and all these kids would just, like, 6 o'clock in the morning, and they're sort of walking the streets. The buses are going down. You know, forget sleeping in out there. I mean, people are just busy. The sun is up. And, um, and so there are all these children. And while I was there, there were these guys that were across the street. Um, and, and I don't know if you've traveled the islands. I've only been to Jamaica, and, and I've been to a couple of the islands. Sometimes you have these houses that are built and never finished. Uh, people will spend some money and sort of put up a, a concrete block structure. The hurricanes just passed through, so they, they build in concrete only. And then they never finish them. And so there was one of these houses that had spray paint all over it, and there were these, these guys that were just making a ruckus. And I, I want to sort of liken them to sort of the Rastafarian guys in Jamaica. They kind of had that, that look, and they were sort of fighting in the street and yelling and carrying on. And somehow I got in a conversation with one of them. And he's like, you know, white guys in his neighborhood like, what are you? Who are you? What are you doing here? And I told him I was preaching at some of the local churches and doing, um, you know, children's work. And right then he decides to sort of quote a psalm to me, right? Um, just, it's just a wild guy off the street, and God is mighty to save man, he says to me. And I thought, this just doesn't add up, bro. You know, just, you guys are fighting in the street, cursing at each other, yelling, and then you want to tell me God's mighty to save and quote verses. And I thought of James. That was a long story to tell you. That, that's when it clicked for me. I thought of James, and I thought of 1 John, who get people who make claims to salvation, and, say, and, and James basically says, is this real? Right? Or have you merely picked up what I'll call cultural Christianity? Have you merely picked up behaviors, right? And what you don't actually have is a genuine spiritual rebirth that occurs. That's why the, the Lord uses the terms that we need to be born again, born from above. Something actually happens. We go from being blind to being able to see spiritually. We go from being deaf to being able to... Here, we go from being dead to being alive. Our whole baptism is a picture of having died with Christ, buried with Christ, risen again with Christ to live a new life. All of these sort of, you know, dichotomous pictures. And then we find people that sort of straddle the fence. And they say they have faith, and they say they have life, and they sing in the choir, and they come to a church, and they sort of mill around with God's people, but something's not quite right. It's for those people, and there's a lot of them, that James 
and 1 John's claims to talk of fellowship with God go right down the middle and fit that context very well. And so I don't know if someone here is like that. I've met people. I know one man. Some of you would know him. He's like, yeah, I sat in assembly like this for 23 years. Took part in the Lord's Supper, did everything, and I wasn't a believer. It happens, right? It happens. Um, James is challenging our claims to faith. Um, so how do we get into that? How, how, does that? how does that arise out of these first few verses? Um, when, when James says that we're to consider it joy when we fall into various trials, why is that? Why should that be our response? It should be our response because what's going to happen when you fall into a trial or when you encounter a trial is that it's going to put to the test what you claim is real about your life. See, it's all fine and good for you to say, I love the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but when your life crashes into a trial, all of a sudden... Those claims and those tests, and there's all kinds of different trials here, get really um, sifted and get really put to the test. And, 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 and out of a person's life comes maybe something that's a little closer to what's potentially really there. And so what you see in James chapter 1 are a couple ways that people respond to trials. One way... It's that there's genuine life there, and God begins to work in their life, and that whole experience produces maturity and endurance. That's the ideal. That's why James is like, this is going to hurt. Nobody wants this. James doesn't say you should be happy when you fall into a trial. He just says, count it joy. You see the difference between sort of feeling emotionally happy? Hey, great. I only had one car, and I just got an accident. That's so awesome. James doesn't say act like that. James says, merely count it joy. Because when God goes through this trial with you, or you go through this trial with God, there's real potential for growth here. And I've said it before here, because oftentimes we don't change in certain areas of our life unless it hurts. Right? There are things that we just don't get around to dealing with unless they hurt. That's one way things can happen. Another way things can happen shows up in Hebrews. You know the whole background of Hebrews, right? Another community of Jewish Christians, the persecution got severe, and what did a lot of them start to do? They fell into a trial. They didn't count it all joy. What did they do? They basically quit. They abandoned the assembly. They went back to the synagogues. Some of them seem to be saying that Jesus should have been put to an open shame. They, 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 they tread underfoot the blood of the cross. And, and the writer of Hebrews writes to this assembly and says, <laughs> go on. So that's the other option. This is what some people do is, is when the trial hits, they abandon. They, they, they walk away. So the challenge of James to us in one way is, what happens when your faith is tested? Right? What happens when your faith is tested? Um, An illustration here is um, many of you have had training at your companies or at work. How many of you have had training of some sort at a company or at work? Two people. The rest of you have got nothing. <laughs> Three maybe. Right. I mean, they've trained you on the defibrillator, right, the thing on the wall. 
You know, when you go to these airports, they get the defibrillators now. When I was a teacher, they're like, everybody's got to do defibrillator training. And they train you in CPR. You think, yeah, I've had CPR training. Right? You have certain kinds of training. But it's interesting that that training, you can be trained but not tested. You haven't had a chance, many of you, to actually put to, put to use your training. But should you ever find yourself in a situation, God forbid, where your coworker falls dead, and you go for that defibrillator, and you, are, you know, or you're doing the, the CPR, and it sort of all kicks in, and, and, and you revive somebody, you're still as trained as the person next to you, but now you know something about your training. And that is, is that it actually works. And that leaves you a more confident person. You think of a person who's been combat trained, right? Been, well, I did ROTC in college, and... Uh, and and it's sort of funny, like, I, so I actually fired a gun, right? I got a 9 millimeter, and they, it was sort of something you had to do for RTC. And so here I was, and I went to a gun range, and I shot it. It was sort of comical, because I'm like, how many people in the Air Force will never actually see combat? They're sitting in chairs, and they're working on computers, and they're soldiers. But it's not, you know, it's just so different. Um, but a person can be trained in combat, and then actually go through it, and experience it, and it's... There is a maturing process that results. Fighter fighters, EMTs, all kinds of things like that. And so there's something about our claims to faith that we begin to see in a different way when we go through trials. You all have made professions to believe that, that God provides. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to be in a place where you, you've got nothing unless God provides. And to see God provide, right? So what's the nature of our of our, our claims to faith. Um, let me point something out. I hope this will be helpful. I wanted to do this this morning in response to the wrong way to respond to faith. Um, if you like to do a few little outlines and then, then we'll move on to another point. Um, when I look at James chapter 1, um, I sort of see the testing event in verses 2 and 4, right? some sort of a testing event. If you take notes, two and four, they're sort of the event. You come into this, this trial. Um, and then in verses five to eight, I see sort of a believer's strategy. What should my strategy be? I need to go to God and ask for wisdom. All right, so, so you've got the event, my strategy. Verses nine to 11, I see something about a right attitude of the believer. Right, the right attitude towards myself and a believer. If I'm a, if I'm a wealthy person with power and I fall into a time of trial, one of the reasons that I should sort of be thankful is because it's going to help me realize that I'm not actually defined by wealth. When I stand before God, I won't have any of that. Right? The trial helps me to realize what's real about me in life. Right? And the brother of low degree is lifted up. So um, I see that. And then verse 12, I see sort of the approval. Blessed is a man who perseveres in a trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. That's an interesting thing to think about, the approval. This is a person that's come out the other side of a trial, like Job, perhaps. There's some sort of a testimony, some sort of an approval. And look at, and I've circled in my Bible, that, that there is a reward for all those that love the Lord. And I think in the middle of this trial issue, we get down to this real, real, genuine question. Do I actually love the Lord? Right? That's, that's sort of the heart of all of this. 
my talk, my attendance at meetings, my singing of songs. But at the heart of all of this, what's going to get exposed in a trial? Whether I really genuinely love the Lord, if there's really life there. Right? If this one is the key in the core of my life, what did Paul say? To live is Christ, right? Christ is the center of life. What does John write or Jesus say um, in, in John 17? This is eternal life. Going to church, getting the best Bible, and putting commentaries on your shelf. That's where it's at. No, right? Eternal life consists in knowing thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's the meaning of life. Put a period on it. You were created by a God who is an awesome being at the center of a massive universe, who's glorious, who's good, and who comes at us. You have no control, uh, control over what the God of the universe approaches you with. Right? You have no control over that. You could have been born into a universe where God was not a good God. Thank the Lord we live in a universe where God is good all the way down, and God comes at us with righteousness and love and goodness. The purpose for your existence... The old, you know, you know, you've all heard the old Westminster Confession to, the, the, you know, is to, the chief end of man is to, to know God or to love God and enjoy him forever, right? Uh, to glorify God. To, our, our whole life is based in, in him. So I thought of that when I saw those words, to those who love him. That's going to get exposed. Do I love the Lord? Now, now you're thinking, hopefully you're thinking, I'm thinking of, of Peter. Right? It's the night of his, Jesus' betrayal, and Jesus says to all of them, you know what's going to happen here? You're all going to deny me, and you're going to run, because this is going to get scary fast. And Peter, like me, like you, is like, no, <laughs> they're going to run. I'm not going to run. I would, Lord, I would never run. What are you talking about? I will be with you to the last. I'm going to be by your side, Jesus. Watch, tonight watch. And Jesus is like, I've already seen it. You're going to deny me three times. And, and, and he does. And then and, and his claim was, Peter's claim was that he loved Jesus more than all of the other disciples. And after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter. He sets up a little fire, just like the fire that, that Peter denied Jesus at. And he brought him there, and he says to him in front of everybody else, just because Peter made that claim in front of everybody else, do you love me? After he had, you know, denied the Lord. I mean, his face must have turned four shades of red. Do you love me, Peter? Well, come on, Lord. Really? You're going to do this here now in front of everybody? Lord, you know I love you. I feed my sheep, Peter. And he, he, and he goes through it three times with him just like he denied him three times. The love of, our love for the Lord is exposed oftentimes in trial. It's something interesting to think about. Uh, the, the beautiful thing of the Lord at, after the whole situation, I mean, it doesn't, get, it, it doesn't get much worse than publicly repudiating the Lord as a believer. And the beautiful thing is Jesus comes to Peter after and says, get back in the game, Right? Feed my sheep. Um, I, I hope that, little point of application, I hope that we would be like the Savior when we deal with people that mess up royally. Right? 
Because every one of you wants the Lord Jesus Christ to be like that with you because you mess up royally. And so when we're approached by others or, or we have that time in our life when we're working with others and they just blow it, sure there needs to be repentance, sure there needs to be confession of sin, sure there needs to be some sort of getting things right. But in the end, remember that the God of the universe and a man like Peter who denied him publicly be like standing out on the street in front of everybody, being like, I don't know Jesus. I don't, I don't want anything to do with these people. Jesus took a man like that and said, get back in the game. Feed my sheep. And that's the kind of God you deal with. But testing exposes our claims to love. Um, here's not the way to respond. Here's not the way to respond. Look at verse number um, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Now, it's the same word in Greek, tempted and trials. But t- temptation can be a trial, right? That's one of the worst trials you can go through is temptation to sin of, of some sort, whatever it is. Um, and the wrong way to respond to these situations is to somehow start thinking about how God is guilty for your circumstances. Um, James says, be careful. Don't, don't do that. What, what I don't want to do this morning is to, um, I don't want to be glib and trite and, 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 and give you cliches about Suffering Right now, if you talk with people um, who don't believe in God, the, the, the problem of evil, POE, if you like acronyms, and you debate with people online or on Facebook, uh, is one of the biggest arguments that's used against God's existence. And it comes in two flavors. There's the logical problem of evil, whether a God who's omni, omnibenevolent, all good, omnipotent, all, all powerful, and omniscient, all-knowing, uh, could logically exist in a world, possibly exist in a world where there's evil. Why do people make that argument? Well, they say, well, if God was all-powerful and he knew about sin or evil, he would do something about it, right? If God was all-loving, he would, and this argument gets deployed. And that, that, that argument has actually been responded to and, and dealt with. I'm not going to spend the time to, to tell that story, um, but, a, but a, a Christian by the name of Alvin Plantinga has, has responded to that argument in a way that many... Atheistic philosophers would, would say has, has been responded to. Um, but a lot of people still feel the force and the power and the pain of evil and suffering in their lives. What I want to do is give you some different thoughts about some of the reasons for why we could fall into trials and, and, and testings in life. Um, and I'm just going to list them for you, and if you want a, a longer explanation, you know how I do. I just say, get my email, and I'll email you some information. Um, one of the reasons why we go through suffering or trial, why we could, is found in the story of Job. What was it that really shines from the story of Job as a result of his whole scenario? I mean, if you think about Job, you read about his patience, but what does Job say about God? He says all kinds of stuff. He probably says too much. And I don't like it when people sit here and ask me questions, and I'm thinking, just say it, man. I don't know what you're trying to get me to say. 
So I would say, when you look at the story of Job in the Bible, one of the things that you see Job do is Job basically says, if I could put it in the vernacular, it doesn't matter what happens to me, God is worth being worshipped. Right? I'm not going to curse God and die. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, finish the sentence. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? And you have a person in whose life, not in some fake way, there was no nets there, in a real life, what happens is God basically says to Satan, if you want to test this man, I'll give you permission. You could take away everything. And I think I've said this before here. This man's personal life became a theater for whether God was worth being worshipped just for who he was. Because the claim of Satan was that people really only worship you because you, you take care of them, Lord. You're buying their worship. Job's not really that kind of guy. He's not a really righteous guy. We all know that he's not righteous. He wouldn't be like that if you weren't taking care of him, Lord. The Lord says, take everything away from him. Strip him down to what he is at the chassis, right? Isn't that what I've been talking about? Our trials expose what's really there. What happened in Job's life? Something that was deep down inside shined forth. A man who thought God was worth worshiping, even if he had nothing. And God got glory from that man's life down through the centuries like nothing else. One reason, one potential for trials is that they expose, they refine like fire, something awesome that's in the lives of people. And it's happened over and over again. Another reason why God allows certain things to happen in certain people's lives is so that he can do certain works. You remember the story of the boy who was, the man who was born blind. The disciples asked, is this man blind because he sinned or his parents sinned, right? You see their cultural ideas engaging, and, and, and the Lord says, no, the works of God are going to be revealed in this man's life. There are some people who are in certain situations because God has set them up because he was going to do a certain kind of work in their life. There's what's known as the soul-making theodicy. A theodicy is a, an attempt to explain why God might allow evil or suffering in the world, right? Why God might allow that. Um, one of the reasons why God allows certain things to happen is because, like I've already said, we oftentimes don't grow and change if everything is easy and comfortable, Many times if we were, you know, if you won the lottery or whatever, however you want to put it, and were to be able to buy the life you wanted, it wouldn't necessarily be healthy for you. The ironic thing, I've heard this, I don't know, I haven't done any study, is that a lot of people who win the lottery wind up destroying their lives or the lives of their children. Um, oftentimes, this, the, the scripture points our attention to the fact that tribulation works patience patience, experience, and experience hope. I've said before that people who go with God through trials will learn things about God that people who haven't gone through those trials with God haven't yet learned. Because that's the only way to learn those things. Right? You can't have, you can't learn about what it's like for you to have nothing left and to know what it feels like for God to be all in all to you 
if you haven't been in that spot. I mean, you can say it, you can read it in someone else's biography, and you could talk about it, but to feel it and to know it and to learn it as yours is a whole different ballgame. Sometimes people experience trials because of stuff they've done, right? The Lord allows that. As we move closer to the Lord, there are certain blessings. Sometimes we move farther from the Lord, there are certain, we just get into situations we shouldn't be in. Um, there's biologically useful pain. I once read an article where, where a mother described pain as a gift because her daughter was born with a neurological condition where she couldn't feel pain. And she was progressively destroying her body. That's a little bit like leprosy. Right? Pain is, is, biological pain is designed by God to cause uh, a defense reaction in, in, our, in, our, in our lives. Um, Just a couple more here on that. Um, there's, actually, there's actually demonic activity, right? Satan and his angels do things in our lives, right? They're at war with us. Um, that can cause pain. Um, there, there, are, there are a number of interesting things like this that help to explain why trials and things like this even exist in our world. Obviously, sin is at the heart of so much of this. Uh, I've got more about this if you're interested in that. Some of you are like, I don't need any of this. And some of you are like, I'd love to read a lot more about that. Um, so let me just close up the first point here. And uh, maybe we'll just squeeze in one more. When you fall into trials, when you come into certain situations, it's going to expose what's really there. And that's a valuable thing. Um, don't be deceived, like you see down in verse number 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived about what's going on in your life. I, I suggest there's five points of self-deception. One of these points of self-deception is that we've deceived ourselves about, who, about, about whether it's really genuine belief in the, the gospel. We've deceived ourselves um, about our relationship with the Lord, and a trial can expose that. I can expose that. Um, look at verse number 20, uh, 21. Well, let's look at verse number 19. Let's just get in the second one here, and then we'll, we'll finish up this morning. This you know, my beloved brethren. I already told you this. You know this, but I'm going to say it again. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why is that? Verse 20, for the, the anger of man, I think the authorized says the wrath of man, doesn't work or doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. And, and, and you might want to qualify it with the wrath of man because there's a righteous anger, and there's a righteous anger that's seen in Scripture. Right? God has a righteous, holy anger. I think if you see someone that's hurting children and you're angry about it, that that's a pure and righteous anger, and it's good to be angry about that, right? And that can sometimes motivate righteous action. But this is, this is described as the anger of man, the anger of humans. Your kind of anger, the Lord says. Not my kind of anger. Your kind of anger doesn't accomplish anything. We see it too often, unfortunately, in local churches. Uh, we see it in marriages. Uh, we see it at the workplace. So what should we do? Therefore, verse 21, therefore, because of this fact, because this is the case, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, 
putting it aside, do this. Do what? In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves, show yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who <coughs> delude themselves or deceive themselves. And this is where I started to get the idea of a message about points of deception. Why? For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, she is like, he is like a man or a woman who looks at their natural face in the mirror, for one has looked at himself and gone away, and has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, here I'm thinking about the scriptures, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, that kind of person, this man, this woman will be blessed in what he does. So you might put here as your second point, hopefully we'll do three to five tonight, genuine faith should not suffer from D, DWA. Right, DWA. I just made that up, so I don't expect that. DWA is disciples with amnesia, all right? Disciples with amnesia. Basically, the scriptures tell us, listen, and I'm gonna, I'll apply this on two different levels. If you're a person who has been in possession of a Bible, coming to meetings, hearing messages, and your life isn't changing, there's filthiness in your life, there's sin in your life, and it's not going away, and you're not even convicted about it, the scriptures seem to suggest, especially from 1 John, I won't go there, that there might be something really wrong, right? Because conviction about sin and a desire to be holy like the Lord and a desire to get rid of what's there is a mark. I mean, when the Lord comes into a place, he's holy and he's righteous. And people who are sinful, remember Isaiah, right? Isaiah chapter 6, he gets in the presence of the Lord and he just, he just starts to fall apart. He starts to confess his sin. I'm, I'm, my, 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 my language is filthy. I'm coming apart. I'm an unclean man. I mean, when you're in the presence of holiness, you just know it. This could even happy if, happy, happen if you're in the presence of a person who's really walking with the Lord. Maybe you just start to feel, hmm, I really need to get my, uh, get my act together here. That's an interesting thing. If, there's, if there's, there, there's no desire for holiness or for change year after year, James says, I don't, I don't want you to deceive yourself. But this can happen to believers as well. I don't want you to be deceived about the fact that there's maybe not even life there, right? That's one way we can deceive ourselves. But also, if you're a believer, you really have genuine life. You know, I know I trusted the Lord. James says, listen, don't deceive yourself. Don't be deceived by just coming to meetings, uh, collecting books, collecting Bibles. Better that you have two or three of them and use them than to have 500. You know, <laughs> I'm a book collector, right? And not use them. What's the point? James says. So verse 21, he wants us to put aside... filthiness, and become progressively more holy. Look at verse number um, 22. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Um, what are we going to say about this in closing? You might want to just stop, uh, much more productive to just sort of stop and, and just take a moment and say, I've heard this before. I've maybe taught it in a Bible study, taught it in a Sunday school class. 
Um, is there an area of my life where I know I need to deal with something and I haven't? Have you, have you done that, right? Have you, and have, you, have you gone from talking about it to actually dealing with something in your life? Um, I, I did that recently. And, um, and at least a couple areas. If you like Old Testament illustrations, um, remember the story of the invasion of the land of Canaan. Right? In Joshua, God takes his people into the land. They conquer certain key strategic areas. But it's in Judges that they're supposed to drive out everybody. And they don't do it. And in the story of Israel, you see again and again and again what's showing up. The high places, the bales, the astros, the groves, all of the stuff that they liked that they wouldn't get rid of, plaguing them over and over and over again little footholds where we start to lose. Are there high places in your life? You've heard these, these illustrations. Are there things that, like the good King Josiah and others, you need to tear them down, throw it out, you know, give it away, call her on the phone, call him on the phone, whatever you need to do to not just be a hearer of the word but a doer and so as to not be a deceived person. So two areas of deception in our lives from James. And Lord only tonight we'll get three others. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess that it's so easy to talk about spiritual things. Lord, especially if we've grown up in quote-unquote Christian families uh, we've spent years around believers. It's easy to just pick it up and talk with the talk. And so, Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning that no matter what the age, no matter how supposedly great the reputation, um, Lord, I ask that you would give the believers courage to examine uh, their own hearts and their faith. Lord, especially if there's someone here who um, hasn't really trusted Christ, uh, that's been sort of going along with the culture, so to speak. Lord, that you would somehow, by your mercy, stop them and help them to realize that they need to be born again like Nicodemus needed to be. Um, not just to be religiously smart. Lord, if there's a person here this morning who um, has all kinds of scriptures memorized, has all kinds of commentaries on their shelves, but has a life that has a gaping wound of sin. Lord, that they would be freed, that you would give them the courage to confess it or to repent from it or to do what they need to do, to do. Lord, that they wouldn't be a deceived person. Lord, we don't want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and realize that we built with cheap materials, that we cheated that we didn't really follow Christ the way that he called us to follow. Lord, we don't want to do that. We ask that you would help us to fix it now while we have years to serve, if that be the case, in front of us. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name.